Hey guys, how you doing? Uh, my name is Raphael. You're listening to the very first episode of In the Foxhole. It's a, an unofficial podcast of Banner Brothers that aired on HBO. I hope you enjoy the first episode, so uh, sit back, relax, and uh, let me know what you think at www.nestedquerypodcast.com or also at nestedquerypodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the first episode. Take care. In the Foxhole is not endorsed by HBO Home Entertainment, DreamWorks Television, and Playtone Production Company. Bander Brothers, its logos, names, still frames, and audio are registered trademarks and copyrights of their respective owners. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. All research information and audio used for the production are cited at www.nessacquerypodcast.com, and any missed sites are merely unintentional. The source of peace is within us, so also the source of war, and the real enemy is within us, and not outside. The source of war is not the existence of nuclear weapons or other arms. It is the minds of human beings who decide to push the button and to use those arms out of hatred, anger, or greed. Dalai Lama Let's think about this. The quote discusses the true inner intentions that people have in their hearts and their souls. What drives one to commit acts of terror or even acts of compassion? Most of the time, the actions of the collective are not congruent with the attributed feeling of those in the group. From a historical perspective, the rise of violence or acts of war usually emerges no clear winner. Sure. Every battle and collective set of fights has an overall victor. However, at the level of the soldiers who were on the front lines, who sacrificed their lives for the greater good, their family members may have a different opinion on that. In overall, the sentiment is positive. Every war has numerous stories of heroism, bravery, camaraderie, as well as disappointment, tragedy, and loss of life. There is no bigger sacrifice than to give your life for the preservation of something bigger than you. Hi, my name is Raphael. I want to thank you for taking your time to listen to the first episode of In the Foxhole, an unofficial Band of Brothers podcast as part of Nessa Query Podcast. First, some ground rules. I am not a historian, nor did I serve time in the military. I'm a fan of film and TV productions, primarily those that are based on historical events and fall into the military genre. So, if you're looking to listen to an expert on all things military of World War II, this is definitely not the place to go. I would like to offer my gratitude to the many heroes that have answered the call to protect our country. I would like to shine a spotlight on the documentary series, Band of Brothers which appeared in 2001 on HBO. It is a 10-part episode documentary based on Stephen E. Ambrose's 1992 non-fiction book with the same title. The series, executively produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, 
who had both previously collaborated on the 1998 war film Saving Private Ryan, which was also indirectly based on another Stephen Ambrose bestseller, D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Climatic Battle of World War II. First things first, if you love the film Saving Private Ryan and have not seen Band of Brothers, I would put that as priority number one in your movie TV lineup. There are many things you can learn from the series itself. Second, a Steven Spielberg project is guaranteed not to disappoint. The character development is incredible, and it is done elegantly as to not shove every character's story down your throat. Lastly, it spotlights a persona of the American soldier from unarguably one of the greatest generations of our time. Along with discussing the 10-part series, there are numerous books that I have read that I will mention in adding context to the stories depicted in Band of Brothers. I will do my best to recognize all cited sources throughout the podcast. In order to accurately provide further substance to these stories, it is only right to discuss these same stories from different passages. So in order to do that, if you hear this... Ah, uh, yes, the ping from the M1 Garand, a 30 caliber semi-automatic rifle, a U.S. service-issued rifle. So throughout the podcast, when you hear that reload sound, that means that there is an accompanied work cited that I will post on my podcast site, www.nestedquerypodcast.com. If you're still here, great. Strap on your boots. Complete your weapons check and prepare to jump out of an airplane into enemy lines. Your assignment is to liberate a foreign land and engage on enemy troops who have already divided and conquered most of Europe. In order to understand the series and its impact made to the United States' war campaign, we need to add context as to how the world got to the state it was in. I would like to discuss some major events in history that attributed to the unrest not only in Europe, but the entire world, and what ultimately led to the United States pushing all of its chips into the middle, going all in with the Allied powers in our Second World War. Democracy is beautiful in theory. In practice, it is a fallacy. You in America will see that someday. Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini was credited with the rise of the fascist movement in Italy during the 1920s. His goal was to basically create a new Roman Empire and soon begin to invade other countries after he gained political power in Italy. Italy, post-World War I, still suffered despite victory from the war. Lack of territorial additions, increased war debt, and unsurmountable unemployment led to the citizens' lack of trust in the Italian government. This led to a huge opportunity for nonconformists like Benito Mussolini to advance his totalitarian view of fascism onto Italy and its struggling political climate. From his founding of the League of Combat, many World War I veterans joined the cause to form a group called the Black Shirts, which was an, un which was an armed militia that would pose as the violent arm of the movement. Fascism posed as the extreme right-wing alternative for a country that was already frustrated and ailing to progress post-World War I. One other thing that Mussolini preyed on 
was the disillusionment and fear of the communist uprising in Europe. His National Fascist Party, PNF, was formed to offer that structured alternative for the country. With the assistance of the black shirts, violence and an already unsatisfied vote, voting base, Mussolini was able to barge into the government when reluctantly offered the office of prime minister in an effort to avoid a civil war. Fast forward five to ten years, the fascism movement was in full swing and Mussolini had achieved full dictatorship power. The Italian economy began to improve due to the many extremes right-wing policies that banned certain employee rights like strikes for better opportunities. The fascist movement literally turned back time as many rights were stripped from its citizens. With his sights on establishing a new Roman Empire, Mussolini was looking to rule all over the Mediterranean and was driven to show just how powerful the Italian military can be. Although he was reluctant in creating an alliance with Germany, they later would join the Axis powers as war became inevitable. In the wooded areas of Germany, a country who neighbors nine other European countries, the most of all countries in Europe, the German army, also known as the Third Reich, was momentously gaining power and support throughout the 1930s. All throughout the northern plains and wooded forestry, home of the Black Forest, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi movement was developing into a world superpower. By the time the Nazis had gained ultimate power of Germany, its youth movement had grown to almost 9 million in membership. The goal was to create a nation of soldiers, raised by the motto of, live faithfully, fight bravely, and die laughing. As the boys were trained for a life of fighting, German women were groomed for a life of motherhood, childbearing, and submissive service to your husband and family. As the movement overwhelmed the country, women were dismissed from senior political and professional positions. Within two to four years, females had been banned from any legal service. Nazi philosophy had the woman's place at home and home only. Hitler wanted a high birth rate and good morals and therefore launched a key policy, the law for the encouragement of marriage. Starting in 1933, which loaned newlywed couples 1,000 marks via the granting of vouchers for household goods. The woman was required to surrender her job, though a quarter of the loan was written off with each child produced. Through this policy, the cross of honor of the German mother was created to honor and recognize German mothers for fine morals, prolific childbearing feats, basically for maintaining a pure Nazi race. There were three classes of crosses that were awarded, bronze to gold, bronze for mothers of four to five children, and gold for mothers with eight or more children. So let's think about this. Newlywed mothers are loaned, not granted, but loaned 1,000 marks. A 1,000 mark loan in the 1930s is the equivalent of a $4,000 loan in the United States. Now let's convert that to dollars today. That would be around $60,000 today. So now back to the 30s. Many young German families, possibly teetering on the poverty line up against the Nazi regime reluctantly obliging to the law of encouragement of marriage. 
now have an equivalent of a $60,000 debt today that will have to be owed back to the Nazi government. If you're already up against all odds, the only way to pay back that loan would be to have children and raise them to the current ideologies of Germany. The incentive to childbear and maintain Nazi standards continued as more children women gave birth to qualified you and family for the simple necessities which are now luxuries, like suitable housing, clothing, and popular foods. Well into the mid-40s, a shade under 5 million mothers were recognized through this program. Hitler's soldier-making machine was complete, and there was no stopping this well-oiled machine of future soldiers at his disposal. The racial cleansing of Germany did not stop with mothers. Art and culture was also greatly impacted during this time frame. Many works were destroyed while preserving and propelling the works of German artists. Punishment was bestowed on those that were later caught with works that were not approved by the government. Nazi propaganda played a huge role in molding the national sentiment of the German people. The Ministry of Public Enlightenment was erected in order to promote Nazi, Nazi ideology via art, radio, film, and in the media. Aryan superiority was the number one priority to promote and to indoctrinate into the upbringing and everyday life of people in the Nazi regime. In Germany, the 1930s were a time of Nazi momentum and further isolation from progressive growth and thought from other world powers. Unemployment witnessed the opposite hockey stick effect, where jobless rates experienced a sudden decrease in the early 30s and continued to drop and maintain well into the 40s. Unemployment volume in 1932 was 5.7 million. Seven years later, unemployment registered at only 100,000 people in Germany. War preparation was largely attributed to the significant decrease of unemployment rates during this time frame. Now, from a data perspective, these unemployment figures were skewed. Let's ponder this. As the Nazi regime and ideology was grabbing a foothold, women in Germany were being pushed out of the workforce. So it's safe to say that initial numbers may have included unemployed women, whereas resulting numbers had excluded women from the sample size to calculate unemployment rates. The economical focus was rearmament to anticipate future military conflict. In 1939, German military spending stood at 25% of its national income, compared to only 16% in Britain and only 1% in the United States. This aggressive strategy of rearmament led to shortchanging other commodities, like simple foods like milk, eggs, fish, etc. In the late 1930s, Germany had now entered prime position to act and begin execution of their invade and conquer plan. The date was September 1st, 1939. An aerial assault has commenced into Poland. Once viewed as a potential ally against future foe USSR, 
Poland had played the non-aggressor and stood in Germany's path. Invasion lasted just three weeks. On September 22, 1939, Warsaw surrendered to Germany. A month later, Western Poland was annexed by Germany. For those Poles that did not flee, especially the military, they were used at Germany's expense in the 1940s during World War II. Although not part of the SS military, reluctant assistance was at Hitler's disposal. A Polish underground state was also formed from the Polish resistance that left the country. With war full tilt in Europe and East Asia, Germany and the Axis powers began collecting immediate successes and conquered territories. The roster of conquered countries began to mount up. Poland, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, and others. No time was wasted in destroying anything that combated the Nazi ideology. Even concentrated bombings in France and Britain were targeted at tourist and religious locations. The photos of bombed churches, museums, architectural marvels were no longer rare things to see. Conquered countries were immediately being prepped to spread the Nazi movement. People in the states were fascinated with photos of Hitler in front of the Eiffel Tower and the Third Reich marching in front of the Arc de Triomphe in 1940. Britain and Winston Churchill were being pushed on to the brink of surrender. Their continued resiliency was shown time and time throughout many battles. One in particular stands out for me. The Battle of Dunkirk. In this northern port of France, the Allied forces was made of British and French armies and the Polish resistance found themselves cornered against the beaches at many ports in northern France. Soldiers in Dunkirk were up against the wall anticipating another lightning blitz offensive from German forces. British officials launched a sort of all-hands-on-deck mentality, searching for additional assistance from merchant ships and citizens with boats to aid the evacuation of cut-off Allied soldiers. The British and Royal Canadian Navy was aided by hundreds of merchant ships who were quickly indoctrinated by the Allied Navy to assist. An estimated 300,000 soldiers were evacuated from the shores in Dunkirk under air assault by Axis forces. It was this level of national devotion and ingenuity displayed by these citizens which lifted up the spirits of the Allied forces and Europeans. While the Americans remained neutral and offered support in terms of supplies, it was only a matter of time before the United States had to revisit their involvement in the second greatest war seen in our time. Populist view of the war was unfavorable in the United States. Many polls saw a 90% unfavorability of getting involved in the war. Many politicians felt that our country was not done rebuilding post-World War I and felt by remaining neutral, it provided us more time to rebuild and appease the national attitude currently felt. The U.S. was content with staying in the sidelines unless later provoked or attacked. Approximately 6,000 miles away from the European front lines, Japan was looking for opportunities to expand territory. Conflicts with China led to many conflicts in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. The Imperial Japanese Navy, which was resembled closely to the British Royal Navy, 
began to grow in power in anticipation for its own survival. At times, Beijing saw itself in Japanese control in the 1930s, and this ongoing conflict led to increased focus by the United States. Increased pressure from Japan-China relations posed concern for the United States and their interests vested in China. Japan's association with Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy also positioned the United States as a prime enemy up against the Axis powers. Increased political involvement in China-Japan relations led to continued exposure and added risk for the United States. In December 1937, Japanese planes mistakenly bombed and sank the United States Navy gunboat Panay on the Yangtze River, straining relations between both countries. Japanese apologies were deemed empty by the American government, but the United States continued to play a neutral role in the turbulent relationships in East Asia. During that time, Japan had achieved occupation of Indochina, a French territory. This finally led to more sanctions and embargoes by the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration. These embargoes proved to be the tipping point for the Japanese nation, as it imported close to 90% of its oil, approximately 80% of that volume came from the United States. The writing was on the wall for the Japanese. War with the United States was inevitable. This ultimately led to the surprise Japanese attack on the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. As President FDR said, a day that will live in infamy. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Now provoked, the United States war machine was running on all gears. War spending increased, war bond purchases were on the rise, and America was preparing for war. <laughs> is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Isuroku Yamamoto, Admiral Japanese Army. Admiral Yamamoto, referring to the surprise attack on December 7th, cautiously referencing the strength of the superpower that the United States is. Given their current state in relations with China and ongoing embargoes imposed by the Americans, there was no choice but to go to war. The sleeping giant is awake, loyal, and willing to fight to the end. Now how's that for some background? 
One of the things I truly believe in is that the success realized by the United States was largely attributed by the generation of willing soldiers we had. Many saw their duty as a national call of duty. Thousands were fleeing to volunteer to protect their family, their country, and later in the front lines to protect the brother next to them in the foxhole. The World War II generation exhibited many characteristics that allowed for a unified fighting front on the front lines and the factories back home. It is unanimously agreed that people in this generation displayed admirable work ethic, disciplined financial acumen, humility, and faithful commitment. Americans, regardless of race, own this war effort as a personal responsibility to finish this on their own terms. It was this level of loyalty and patriotism that was gracefully depicted in the Band of Brothers docuseries. The harmonic responsibility taken by all soldiers, especially the men of Easy Company, allowed for the synergistic strength that was executed on the Axis forces in the European battlefields. I remember when I first watched the 10-part series. It was through male DVDs from Netflix. I had seen snippets of scenes through syndication on the BBC, but never really invested all my attention in taking it all in. After really sitting down and watching the first few episodes, I knew I had stumbled across a very special project. Fast forward to present day. I have seen this series multiple times, and every time I notice something new either about the various characters or the battles themselves. This left me wanting to know more about the company I'm in. Although most were depicted in the series, it was interesting to learn further things about the men of Easy Company. I discovered how these soldiers lived before the war, their exact accounts of the battles they were involved in from their memoirs, and their outlook post-war. Nearly all of those soldiers have passed on, but it is vital that we continue to highlight the many sacrifices made by these brave warriors. The books that I will be referencing throughout the podcast are the following. Band of Brothers, E Company, 506th Regiment, 101st Airborne from Normandy to Hitler's Eagle's Nest by Stephen E. Ambrose. Beyond Band of Brothers, The War Memoirs of Major Dick Winters by Dick Winters and Cole C. Kingseed. Easy Company Soldier, The Legendary Battles of a Sergeant from World War II's Band of Brothers by Don Malarkey. Parachute Infantry, an American paratrooper's memoir of D-Day and the fall of the Dirk Reich by David Kenyon Webster and Stephen E. Ambrose. Call of Duty, My Life Before, During, and After the Band of Brothers by Lieutenant Lynn Compton and Marcus Brotherton. Brothers in Battle, Best of Friends by William Wild Bill Garnier and Edward Babe Heffron and Robin Post. Along with the additional information from the books mentioned, I also will do my best to add material on the battles depicted in the docuseries. I believe adding context to those battles will generate even more empathy to the series and the men portrayed. I will take you through Operation Overlord, also known as D-Day. 
How did this day impact those soldiers? What was going on through their heads? We'll discuss the Battle of Carrington, where Easy Company soldiers joined others to capture the port city. The immediate transition into the Battle of Bloody Gulch, as the German army were regathering to re-engage into Carrington. We will follow another jump into Operation Market Garden, where Easy Company liberates the Netherlands. The experiences of the soldiers in Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge, and the cost of human life suffered from the army as a whole. In addition to these major battles, I will discuss other small missions and conflicts depicted in the series or books. Aside from the violent battles, it is also imperative to discuss other sights and findings that Easy Company encountered. Primarily Episode 9, when men on patrol stumble across one of the many concentration camps in Germany. The 10-part series focuses on particular soldiers throughout each episode, either through loop narration or specific scenes of interaction. It was this type of character development that sparked an interest within myself to learn more about these heroes. The impact left by the documentary series and the stories of Easy Company is incalculable. These are stories of brotherhood, bravery, patriotism, sacrifice, tragedy, and victory. All these men are real heroes and part of a past generation that is now becoming a memory and in need of continual appreciation. It is our duty to cherish these memories and continue to remember those heroic feats. That will do it for episode one of In the Foxhole. Thank you very much for joining me today on today's episode. I hope you learned about the environment that set the stage for the series. The future episodes will follow the 10-part series episodes. Thanks again, and I'll see you in episode two. In the Foxhole is not endorsed by HBO Home Entertainment, DreamWorks Television, and Playtone Production Company. Band of Brothers, its logos, names, still frames, and audio are registered trademarks and copyrights of their respective owners. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. All research information and audio used for the production are cited at www.nessacquarypodcast.com and any missed sites are merely unintentional.